Welcome to Shift, a college admissions ACT and SAT podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that includes everything you need to ace your ACT exam. A full textbook, tons of questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm, videos on key topics, a built-in study planner, and fully practice exams. You can get a free trial at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got David Blobaum from Summit Prep back with us. Really excited to have you back, David. Could you just introduce yourself to people who maybe haven't heard you before? Absolutely. So, thanks for having me on, Tyler. My name is David Blobaum. I'm one of the co-founders of Summit Prep. We're based out of New Jersey. I'm also the director of outreach for the National Test Prep Association, which helps test prep for professionals, prep for the exams, and help students as much as possible. Very cool. Well, thank you. And so today we're going to be talking about one of the most interesting shifts in admissions right now, I think, because, you know, starting in COVID, you know, a bunch of places had no choice but to go test optional. Then with sort of the push for more equitable admissions in general, um, there were a lot of schools that kind of felt like doing test optional was even like sort of a moral prerogative a little bit. And then... The SCOTUS ruling happened, which struck down affirmative action. And so in all of this, you know, it, one might reasonably assume that schools would double down on test optional, but it's actually not working out that way. And there's good reason why. So I don't know if you want to kick things off. So I think you want to do a, you, I think one of the phrases we want to use is test preferred is the new test optional. I don't know if that's a good place to start. No, and that's a great way of phrasing it, that yes, test optional, what does that really mean? Test preferred, and we can get into why. So it's hot off the press. Your listeners are the first people to hear this. Um, we just, my company just completed a study of the top 100 schools looking at their test practices, what they say in their PR releases, what they say actually then in the common data set that actually shows what they do, and then also doing a deep mm-hmm. dive into what do they say on podcasts? What do they say on the hidden pages of their admissions page if you just keep clicking in? So I'm really mm-hmm. happy to uh, just share those results with you. Yeah, no, take it away. What do you want to share? So I think one of the most telling things was what schools actually say when you really look in detail into their admissions websites. So it might end up starting to sound redundant, but I think it's really important to just actually show what they say. So keep in mind all the schools that I'm going to be reading their statements from, they're quote unquote test optional. Mm -hmm. This is from Harvard. SAT and ACT tests are better predictors of Harvard grades than high school grades. So as everyone will tell you, high school grades are the best predictor of success in college. What Harvard is saying is no, at Harvard, a student's high school grades are not even the best predictors. SAT and ACT scores are. That makes SAT and ACT scores the best predictors of success at Harvard. So if you think they don't care about SAT and ACT scores, they're telling you otherwise. They're telling you they actually, if they follow their own admission, that they technically should care about SAT and ACT scores even more than grades at Harvard. Right. And again, there's good reason for this, right? Because grade inflation has gotten pretty bad. I mean, I think it's, it's I heard the stat once like almost half of American students have a 4.0 or better. Exactly. So, in and actually we can definitely 
touch on that because that'll make everything else make more sense probably. So the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA, they've been doing the same study for now over 60 years. And they do the largest scale study of grades of high school students who then go on to pursue college degrees. So their data set is always around 30,000 or more students. So starting in 1966, when they started tracking that data, it was 21% of students who went to pursue a four-year BA degree at a a university had an A plus, A, or A minus average. So we'll just say A average. That means 80% Mm -hmm. of students didn't have an A average. Fast forward to Mm -hmm. last year, it was 80.6% had A averages. 80% had A averages. That's A plus A or A minus averages. Only 20% of students going on to a four-year BA-granting university did not have an A average. So A truly, literally means average for all those students going on to a four-year university. Right. It also means that if, you know, if you're applying to Harvard, right, and you having an A average is probably totally table stakes. Like it's not even, it's not even like good table stakes. It's just like, if you don't have this, it's a problem. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. If you don't have it, you're out. I mean, the number of students who get C's in high school and then go on to a a university degree is almost none. I think it's Mm -hmm. University of Georgia is like 0.2% of students that go to University of Georgia had like one C on their transcript, right? It's, it's, It's essentially zero. So there has been so much grade inflation, but really grade compression, where everyone is compressed into essentially having perfect grades. That's just like prerequisite to just even be considered. Right. So to your point, that's why SAT and ACT scores do become important because there is so much great inflation. Mm -hmm. And just some other statements from uh, these top schools on their score use policies. So I love Duke has like the most blunt statement. It's amazing. They say, buy a study guide and begin taking practice SAT and ACT tests. We recommend that a student take an official SAT or ACT in the springtime of their junior year. Again, they're test optional. I'm not even going over test required schools like MIT and Georgetown. Right. Yale, applicants who have successfully completed one or more ACT or SAT exams should consider including scores, even if those scores are below the 50% range listed below. Yale's internal research has consistently shown that standardized test scores are a significant predictor of a student's undergraduate academic performance. What I think is really important there is Yale is saying, don't listen to the advice from these highly paid college counselors who tell you, hey, if you're not at the 25th percentile or above, don't submit your test scores. Yale is saying, hey, maybe take that with a grain of salt. And there are still Mm -hmm. a lot of college admissions counselors who are saying you have to be at the median of of that school's enrolled student test scores. Yale is saying it's not the median, it's not the 25th percentile, even consider it if it's below the 25th percentile. I also think that there's, it's kind of like the counselors are giving advice that one might be outdated um, because I think that might've been a better strategy in like 2021. Um, And then two, I think that their advice is in, in some ways they're, 
like for excuse my French, they're kind of doing a little bit of like cover your ass. Um, right? Where it's like, well, you know, if you're applying to Yale and you have like a 1430, you know, we know that it probably won't help you to submit the 1430 if it's too low, right? So like let's just have you not submit and it's not my fault. Um, as opposed to, you know, getting a better score. <laughs> but the other thing too is this on the other hand, you know, one of my favorite sort of quotes, I think it was George Carlin or something, is um, everybody thinks they're an above average driver, right? And so it's like, similarly, if you have a 50th percentile, that means that half the people are under the, that percentile. Like, it's okay if you're under that percentile too, because still, that's half of the people that got in are under it. You're exactly right. So clearly, they have to take some students who are below even their 25th percentile, right? Because otherwise, well, right. Otherwise, it'd be the, that would be the bottom. Exactly. And, and as we'll get into, the, the University of Michigan study that was released yesterday, it gives every explanation for why that's the case, that they want lower test scores because it's going to actually pick up amazing students and be far more equitable than test optional admissions. Um, so that's really why, and we'll get into that, why Yale is doing that. But some other statements from top schools, so for instance, Princeton, they have the Q&A um, or the frequently asked question on their website. If I've taken the SAT, ACT, should I submit the test? Will you still consider it? They just answer yes. Those standardized test results will not be required for fall entry in 2023, 2024, and 2025. We still value these test results and we'll evaluate them within the context. And again, that context is going to become really important. Northwestern says, while high school grades are a strong predictor of academic success in college, the combination of grades and standardized test scores has been shown to strengthen that prediction. Stanford, standardized testing is one of the application requirements that can highlight academic preparedness. It's really weird that he actually still left that language of requirement, because then right above that, it says that they're optional, but they literally didn't even change it from required, which is kind of ironic. Uh, but then it goes on. And then it goes on. I mean, University of Chicago, Dartmouth, um, as expected, these very top schools, they, they want the SAT and ACT results. But what I found even more interesting is schools lower down the list of the top 100 schools, they also want these scores. So UT Austin mm -hmm. changed their language to say students are encouraged to submit SAT, ACT scores, but it is not required. So that's really mm. where they're showing that it's test optional. Yes, you have the option, but it's not an equal option for admission. They're showing that test optional really means test prefer. They're saying they're encouraging it. Well, I also think that's what the thing that to me is more telling, because um, that was one of the questions I had going in. It's like how, you know, university websites are pretty big. Like how much of this might just be the fact that they maybe like, have conflicting language. Um, but if they've gone and changed their language from, you know, we're test optional to we strongly suggest you take a test, that indicates like a deliberate decision and a shift, right? And I think that that's really important. Exactly. I should point out all of these are on the updated pages where it, they're, it's clearly updated because they reference the test optional language on all of these web pages. So all of these are at least on pages that have been updated, but that's a good point. I mean, they could on other pages definitely have outdated information. 
I mean, they could, but if you're like, I, I wasn't going to discredit whatever you found because it doesn't seem like that's the case. It also is, frankly, like a website like the Harvard University website is probably maintained by a team you know, of people that their entire job is to make sure everything is up to date and consistent because they could get in trouble if it's not. So I think that all makes sense. That's pretty interesting though. So, I mean, so I guess for me, I feel like at this point, hopefully the listeners agree that we've kind of like, we've, we've gotten to the point where we say, yes, we see in the data that schools are more test up or more test preferred now than they and like less test optional preference now. I am curious, uh, do you want to keep digging into quotes or have a couple more choice quotes, or do you want to start digging into the why? We can dig into the why for sure. Yeah. So the why goes back to that grade inflation and context. So let's just paint the picture for an, an admission of what it looks like from an admissions officer's standpoint. There are over 20,000 high schools in the United States. That's mm -hmm. not including applicants then from who are homeschooled or apply from any number of schools internationally. Mm -hmm. Those high schools also have very different grading scales. As Rick Clark, the director of uh, admissions to Georgia Tech has said, grade inflation is rampant. And also there's just so many different grading scales out there. Out there. This is according to him that some of those grading scales, they don't even have letter grades. They have emojis or narratives written. Whoops. Right. So if there's all these different grading scales from all these different high schools, and then all those different applicants, they took different classes from different teachers, the teachers grade differently. How? Can right. That was always the problem, right? <laughs> right. That you can get unlucky and you get that, you know, biology teacher who just doesn't have grade inflation and the top students are going to get B's and another one grades very easily. So how can you really know precisely what an A in one school means to an A in another school or even an A between two students at the same school because they took different teachers and different classes? So those GPAs are very, very hard to or really impossible to accurately, very accurately compare what an A means one place to an A in another. And we also know that grade inflation is not equal across all schools. So it's the wealthiest schools that have the most grade inflation. So those private schools, they have more grade inflation. The rich public schools, they have more grade inflation as well. Right. I mean, yeah, I have, um, you know, I have teacher friends and um, I, I just, I don't want to say too much because it's like, it's, you know, they're, it's their, uh, <laughs> it's their jobs. And I don't know, it's un very unlikely, but basically, basically TLDR, uh, it's really hard to give someone below a C at a good private school nowadays. Like, like you will get a lot of grief, both from the parents and then from the administration, because the administration wants to keep the parents happy, which is like ridiculous. It basically means that like there, there's never any D's or F's and like there never will be right and i think that's it's something that's pretty rampant even like i i also know that there are prep schools like just that i have friends who have kids that are in them right now that are very similar too 
Absolutely. And I mean, I would even say, I mean, I know of parents who will go in and talk to the teacher if the kid gets a B on something. So there's a lot of pressure on teachers to give inflated grades because otherwise the parent is going to blame that teacher for holding their child back. Yeah. And also frankly, like the, it's unfortunate, but it feels like parents have kind of stopped thinking of school as like something that should be challenging your kid and like getting, you know, teaching them, you know, not only the normal skills of like science and math or whatever, but like life skills, like how to work hard and all that stuff. Like now if it feels like people kind of see school as a transaction where it's like, I'm going to you go like particularly private school. It's like, I'm paying for this school so that my kid can get into a certain level of college that will feel good for me. And I'll feel like I was a successful parent. Right. And they don't really care about the kid learning the lessons along the way. Right. They're not paying 40 or $50,000 a year for a private school to go to a mediocre college for sure. Yeah. And even if it's their kids not fucking doing the work, which is, excuse my French again, uh, but which is a total, like totally a thing that happens because <laughs> the kids know that they don't have to because the helicopter parents are going to show up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then all this great inflation, it also makes it hard for parents to understand. It makes it harder to understand SAT and ACT scores because when a child has been on honor roll or high honor roll their entire academic career, and then in 11th grade, the kid gets a 20 on the ACT, they, they blame the ACT and say, well, the ACT isn't picking up my child's potential. But the problem is, is that an A average is average, and a 20 is the average ACT score. So a student who gets a 20 on the ACT is actually the grades actually probably did predict that SAT or ACT score. It's just the parents understandably don't know that the vast majority of a student's peers also have straight A's. Right. They're not used to the whole grade inflation, right? Cause it didn't happen when they were growing up. Precisely. Yeah. And A was still a good grade. And so it can be very hard for parents to, then reconcile the fact that actually the child's success in education was not what they were made to believe up until 11th grade. And they start taking these universally available standardized exams like the SAT and ACT. And it's hard conversations that I have to have every single week with, with families. Well, I think the other, or yeah, um, just the last point on this, I think that, the other piece of why your hypothetical student might get a 20 on the ACT is because they just haven't learned how to study, right? It, it took me till I, you know, basically got my butt kicked by the, uh, the SAT when I took it the first time that I was like, oh, I have to study for this, right? I just kind of like coasted without worrying about studying really for any tests up until that point. And I think that, you know, there's just, like I said, with great inflation, one of the knock-on effects is there's like a lot of skills that you don't really develop because you don't need to, right? And then <laughs> lo and behold, pretty good for pretty helpful for getting a good score on a standardized test, which is actually standardized. Definitely. And 
Also, unfortunately, the the rise in grade inflation is coinciding with drops in standardized test scores. So, for instance, the ACT, it hasn't substantially changed in about 30 years. So the, the grading scale has remained the same since then. And last year, it was the lowest ACT scores ever on, at least on this scale that the ACT is currently on. It was a 19.8 was the average. And it's not just ACT scores either, though. It's also standardized measures on other exams, too. The National Center for Education Statistics has a long-term trend assessment. They show that, you know, since the pandemic happened, there's been a drop in reading and math scores. And actually, the fastest, mm-hmm. the sharpest ever drop in math scores ever since they've started um, researching it. So at the same time that grades are getting better, actual reading and math ability are actually going down. Right. It's actually a pretty twisted combination if you think about it, right? Because <laughs> you've got a bunch of people that are getting... A, that you know are expecting to get A's, and I think they're still getting A's, right? Based on what we've seen about grade inflation since the pandemic, but like the bar for getting an A got even lower, or it must have, if they're not if they're that deficient in what they've learned, right? And this is something that you know I've heard talking. You mentioned the NTPA, or you know, we're also a member. If you are in the industry, you should check it out, and they have like happy hours and people talk about how kids are coming in now that their math skills are, you know, maybe at the eighth grade level, like trying to prepare for the ACT or SAT. And you're just like, Whoa, like what happened here? And it, you know, unfortunately, regardless of sort of the politics of it, like having kids try to take, go to school at home um, and having everybody do that for two years when nobody was trained on it, right including these poor teachers um basically like set everyone back kind of a year to two years right like it's almost a wash a little bit is what it sounds like definitely and the the problem i think is that so many of these things are cumulative so if you don't get a good foundation in algebra your foundation in math in higher level math is really not good but instead of holding these kids back or actually, you know, having them go to summer school, they just push them along with passing grades or good grades. So it is actually a a really big problem. But on that note, two more depressing things, but then I can get to the um, Harvard Brown study and also the University of Michigan study that give us, I think, a good remedy to this. Yeah. So the other thing to consider is when we're talking about admissions is what gets students in and the vast majority of criteria massively favor the wealthy so again this is going to be depressing but there's going to be a silver lining later so Mm -hmm. gpa we talked about those wealthy schools whether public or private have more grade inflation so the wealthy kids have higher grades on average even if they don't necessarily deserve them like even if the school isn't of a higher education quality they're great. They're likely to have higher grades. The college mm-hmm. essays that they submit are likely to be processed by highly paid educational consultants who can either help craft or just literally write the essays that will appeal to college admissions officers. The right, and they they're you know like a personal editor, which most most of the time these people are getting like one or two edits like at all. 
Absolutely. And then there's teacher recommendations. So again, from the wealthy schools, whether public or private, the teachers know that they have to give glowing recommendations that are long and detail-oriented. And studies that have looked at teacher recommendation quality show that if you go to a not wealthy school, whether public or really a not wealthy public school, your teacher recommendation is very likely to be so incredibly cookie cutter that you can put any student's name at the top because that's what the teachers mm-hmm. are basically doing. They don't want to spend ton, And I get it. Um, I, I'm not. Well, I mean, they probably are like way overloaded, right? And like letters of recommendation are basically free work that teachers are expected to do. And essentially, like if you're getting paid, you know, really well at a private school and you don't you don't have a million classes and your classes don't have 50 students each, you have a lot more time to do this free work. Absolutely. And then there's also demonstrated interest that a lot of schools track. So if you actually go to campus and do a campus tour, you're showing that you're more interested. The reason schools care about that is because if you demonstrate interest, you're more likely, if the school gives you an acceptance letter, to then enroll. So that's why they track demonstrated interest, because it impacts their yield rate. Well, if you're a disadvantaged student, you probably can't just jump on a plane and go visit a school in a different state. So they're at a disadvantage there. Extracurricular activities. We know that the wealthy have way more access to extracurricular activities or internships, et cetera. Mm -hmm. A rigorous high school curriculum. The wealthier the school, the more access to AP AP classes or IB classes. Also legacy. The wealthier are more likely to be legacies. Early decision. That's a huge leg up because it impacts, Mm -hmm. again, a school's yield rate and Early decision is primarily used by the wealthy. There's athletic recruitment. Wait, that, sorry, a lot of these have been kind of like no-brainers. Why is early decision used more by the wealthy? That's, that's one I haven't seen before. So, and there was actually just data that came out from the Common App, just the, ex, the extent that the wealthy, and it's not just the wealthy, but it's also the degree attainment of other people in your zip code. Those two things combined, which are also related, massively predict whether or not you're going to apply early decision. So you have about, I think it's about a 40% chance of applying early decision somewhere if you're in the top band of education, whereas you have about a 4% if you're in a zip code with the bottom band of education. So massively different early decision application rates, mostly because of information, but also if you apply early decision, You can turn that school down if you don't get enough financial aid, but that's really the reason not to apply early decision is you're losing your ability to pick and choose between different financial aid packages from schools. So there's, you know, a very reasonable, justifiable economic reason why a disadvantaged student would not be applying early decision that they might get in, but it might cost more because they've lost the leverage to negotiate on the financial aid and compare offers. Right. Very interesting. Okay, cool. I mean, I think that just in general, yeah, the, the biggest, and this is kind of the, the, the other thing that happened with the SCOTUS ruling that everyone kind of rolled their eyes at was like, there's been affirmative action for the rich the entire time. Um, and there still is, right? Like, I mean, legacy admissions as a great example I think there was something 
that I saw about Harvard's uh, m- one of their more recent classes, maybe it was 2022, where um, out of their white students that they admitted, 45% were either legacy or related to athletics. So it was like, it, like that's, that's half the school, <laughs> right? That's pretty crazy. It is. It's insane. And, and that was the next thing on the list, which is athletic recruitment. Because when people think athletic recruitment, a lot of people will incorrectly think that that, that actually spurs diversity. But not at all, because mm-hmm. the sports that these Ivy Leagues are recruiting for are Ivy League sports for most of the sports. So uh, lacrosse or squash, these are not offered at the vast majority of schools. They're offered at the wealthy public and the wealthy private schools. So that also athletic recruitment advantages the wealthy. There's, of course, children of large donors. They're obviously, um, that's an advantage to the wealthy. And also just being full pay. If you are a full pay student, you get a massive increase in your admissions chances. So all these advantages accrue to the wealthy. So how can a disadvantaged student compete? Only on grades and standardized test scores. And it- right, and we talked about how grades are already kind of, kind of an issue. And one of the main ways that they used to be able to compete was, you know, even just checking the box on the common app of what the race was, which is now gone. Correct. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. With grades, you really can't compete because everybody has these top grades. And also these disadvantaged students are more likely to go to a school where they actually, even though they're a top student, they're more likely to have some A minuses on their transcript because they're going to schools with less grade inflation. So that really leaves SAT and ACT scores as the way that they can stand out to these top colleges. What mm-hmm. what the University of Michigan study, again, that just came out yesterday, it just so brilliantly highlights is why SAT and ACT scores are far more equitable if you're requiring them than if you're not requiring them, than if you're test optional or test blind. And the reason for that mm-hmm. is Grades and test scores, they do predict success in college, but if you want a much, much stronger relationship, what you need to do is consider grades in a student's context and SAT, ACT scores in a student's context. So let's just take a fictitious student who has A's and A minuses. She goes to a disadvantaged school and she has a 1300 on her SAT. Most people would say, don't submit that 1300 to these top schools because mm-hmm. it's way below the, the school's average, way below the 25th percentile even. But mm-hmm. if colleges actually do holistic admissions, which they say that they do, then her 1300 will absolutely should and probably will actually make her stand out because at her school, she's going to a disadvantaged public school, very likely that the average on the SAT at her school is a 900. Well, a 1300 mm. then is four standard deviations above the average. That puts her above the 1% of students who graduate from her school based on her SAT score. That 1300 shows far more than A's and A minuses that she is an absolutely exceptional student. And if she's given the chance at Yale, she's probably going to rock it far more mm. than a student who has a 1500, but comes from a really wealthy school. 
So you can really see which students will stand out when you have the context of their SAT and ACT scores, and you lose all of that for the most disadvantaged students because you're telling them your SAT, ACT score isn't good enough to submit. It's below our 25th percentile. But really, that's where we can actually shine a light on these exceptional students with low, in an absolute sense, scores relative to other applicants, but unbelievably high given their circumstances. Right. Well, I think that's kind of the key for all of this, right? It's like it's context is everything. And I also feel like there's so many, like for me, I, as much as standardized testing isn't perfect either, right? Because obviously wealthy people have more access to tutoring and resources to help with standardized tests. I think that you did highlight a counter argument to that, that idea, which is like, you should be looking at standardized test scores in context of the environment that they're in, right? Do you feel like colleges do that now? Um, or, you know, is that, is that, I'm just kind of ignorant to this. Is that something that colleges kind of know they should be doing? Is it something they ac actually do a lot? Like, what do you think? I don't think they do it nearly enough. So I think the University of Michigan study is really, really, really important for colleges to start doing what they say that they're doing. So the University of Michigan study essentially proves M the approach that MIT took. MIT said mm -hmm. we're going back to requiring test scores because these test scores help us find exceptional students who were just disadvantaged in life. So mm -hmm. MIT is actually practicing that. I do not believe that these other schools are because if they were, they'd be requiring these test scores. If you are test optional, you're, you're just, you're not going to get 1300s from a disadvantaged student. That disadvantaged student is going to apply with just their grades and never get in. Right. Well, and also, um, you know, they're going to get advice to not submit their grades either. Exactly. They're going to get that advice and that's why they won't submit. And so I think these top schools really need to use the tools at their disposal to look at the school's average, look at the student's average, and then be able to say, hey, the student's an amazing student, they should get in. I mean, actually, I've pitched this idea to the ACT that I would love it if they just made that an automated process, that any student who scores in three standard deviations above their school's average, so in the top 1% of their school, their scores just get sent to all colleges or made available to all colleges for free because these are the exceptional students who we know they could excel in any school that they attend. And so those are the exact mm -hmm. students that the top colleges want to find. Well, how are the schools countering the Scottish decision? They're saying, we're going to go into these disadvantaged schools and invite students to apply. That is the least efficient way you could go about doing it because you're going to get a lot of students that then they'll just reject. It's much better right. if these students are identified and presented to these schools so that these schools can directly go recruit the students that they're, they're looking for. That helps both the school and the student massively more efficient. Right. And the thing that's also important to remember is like the context of how students are being told about college admissions just is completely different. And I think so many people kind of come from, particularly if you know you work at Harvard as an administrator or whatever, like a lot of people come from the same bubble that they're kind of like feeding back into, which is the idea that, you know, 
starting in kind of freshman or sophomore year of high school, like your parents are all about you going to college. You're figuring out, like, you're look, thinking about what schools you want to go to. You're starting to think about what extracurriculars you want to have. You're starting to think about, oh, like, what AP classes am I going to take? Versus if you're in a disadvantaged community or you have two working parents or you're just in a place where maybe you're the first person in your family to go to college or maybe your, you know, social circle thinks that college is stupid. And that was something that I ran into a lot, um, even in California when I was in public school was like there were a lot of people that were like, I don't care about college. Like, I'm going to be a mechanic, so, like, who cares, right? My dad's a mechanic. He's going to hire me at a shop when I graduate high school, and that's that. And so it's like when you're surrounded by that, it's a, and Harvard showing up and saying, hey, we'd love for you to apply. is like, what? Like, that, <laughs> the, 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 the core problem here is more around, like, these people are in an environment that is not typical of the people that apply to your school showing up for a day to say hello to that environment doesn't really help i completely agree definitely and and to say hey you could apply it's like but to your point yeah it's, you're not it's a ton of work right exactly exactly There's so many obstacles um between showing up to say apply and actually applying and then getting in and feeling like you could get in Right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I don't, I, I feel like there might be reasons why ACT doesn't do the test score thing that you can make it an opt-in and then that, that would probably solve most of them. Um, but I do think that your point is well taken, right? Which is that if you're, you know, scoring in the top 1% of your school, especially with historic data on a standardized test, that should mean a lot. And that I think is kind of the point of the University of Michigan study too. Exactly. And there was also recently a Harvard-Brown study that showed that using subjective criteria, like those teacher recommendations, like the essays, those advantage the wealthy far more. Because those, one, they don't show necessarily academic achievement. They don't show the actual necessarily even the work of the student at all. So it's those public schools that use SAT, ACT score, the the big state public schools that use SAT, ACT scores more because they simply don't have the manpower or or the the person power to, you know, look at all these applications in depth. So they default to using SAT, ACT scores more. And ironically, that ends up being far more fair and they end up not actually giving really accidentally successful right right accidentally successful so i think it is trending back in the direction of reason and what decades of research covering millions of students has shown is that sat act scores they help predict a student's success in, in college and especially given all the gains on all the other criteria they're also more fair when we then add in a student's context, the SAT and ACT scores are still the engine of equity and opportunity that they were designed for. That was their literal intentional purpose when they were when they were designed is to break the stranglehold that elite high schools had on going to elite colleges and be able to find these diamonds in the rough. So that purpose has not been eliminated. It has been hurt by, you know, 
all the other prep that the wealthy um, put into these tests, but it hasn't been eliminated. That engine of opportunity is still there with the SAT and ACT. It's a student's best chance if they're disadvantaged to have the top schools in the country still look at them and recruit them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Well, I think at this point, I mean, I feel pretty good about everything that we've covered today. I think maybe just, is there anything else that we want to kind of like touch on before we wrap up, right? Like, I feel like we've, we've done good on sort of like, you know, great inflation, and everything. And, there, you know, that's sort of setting the stage for like the problem, talking about the, talking about what colleges actually want, talking about the study. Maybe we now talk about the trend in the future, like where things are going. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. The trend in the future, I think, will be that schools will retain their test optional policies because it is only to the school's benefit to retain it because far more students apply. And the more students that apply, the more they're not opening up more seats for accepted students. They have the same number of students that they're going to enroll. So the more students apply, the more students they can reject and the lower their acceptance rate goes. So it makes them look better. They can also play these games with then admitting recruited athletes without test scores to get those good athletes who otherwise wouldn't be able to get in with test scores and to let in those legacy admits without test scores so that they can get that legacy wealthy kid to help their bottom line and preserve those alumni relations relationships without bringing down the school's average SAT, ACT score. So. Mm-hmm. If schools were to do what they actually say that they're trying to do, which is to preserve equity, I think they would go back to test required. I think they would follow the yes. lead of MIT. But I do not have that. I mean, colleges are businesses. They act, they accept students who will help them. They're not trying to really help students. It, it's about them. They're doing what's in their best interest, not what's in the student's best interest. And so if we understand right. that, that informs why these schools are test optional, probably stay test optional. What it's important for families to understand is let's pierce the veil of what schools are actually doing. The best way to do that just for any person is to Google the school's name followed by the words common data set. In the Mm -hmm. school's common data set, most schools release what percentage of enrolled students submitted SAT and ACT scores. That's where you can actually see what are schools doing so that when they say, hey, we're truly test optional, but then 85% of enrolled students submitted test scores, you know they're not truly test optional. They're truly test very preferred. So right. that would be the last thing I would leave families with is actually go see what colleges are doing, type in the school's name, common data set, see what percentage of students who are enrolled submitted scores. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And I mean, I also, I, I always advocate for families doing their own research outside the U.S. News uh, World Report list and things like that. Um, I also agree with you that I don't think test optional will ever go away, both because of the optics, which are unfortunately misinformed, and because it's convenient for those reasons you mentioned, right? Like it gets you, I mean, I've heard like examples already of you know people applying to the athletics portion like to be a college athlete and the coach telling them don't submit your test scores 
that way it's easier for us to say yes to you right like there's a bunch of that stuff so i think that it i am probably in the same boat as you where test optional will not go away optically but it will probably go away in reality for most applicants I completely agree with you. Yeah. And I mean, about 20% of my students, they're recruited athletes to these top schools. And what the coaches will tell them is, hey, send me your SAT and ACT scores. And then they'll get through the pre-read process of admissions, or just the coach will give the thumbs up on the SAT, ACT score and say, okay, uh, 1400 tells us that you have the knowledge and skill to do well here, but don't bring our school's average down. And then Exactly right. what you said. Well, those students will be told, don't submit your SAT ACT score when you officially apply. So then they get to have their cake, get the SAT ACT score and eat it too, not have it bring down the school's average. And that student will be counted in the common data set as not having submitted an SAT ACT score when really they did. It was just never officially. It was just pre-screened. Pre-screened. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like you said, it's uh capitalism, man. Uh, yeah. It's fun. It, this is capitalist education at work. The good news is, you know, American universities are very, very good. Um, and hopefully we can kind of get through this whole little weird middle period together. But to me, I do think that the trend is definitely towards tests being more strongly preferred. And the good news is I do think that both the test companies, right, like the, the, the SAT and ACT and their respective companies are doing a pretty good job of modernizing their tests and making them as relevant as they can, right? So hopefully, and there's lots of great prep materials out there. Um, and, you know, obviously there's ours, Achievable as an ACT course, and, you know, Summit Prep has tutoring for both. Uh, but then also, you know, there's plenty of free resources too, right, for people that maybe don't have the money to spend on either of us, you know, Khan Academy has a ton of SAT stuff for free that is basically applicable to the ACT too. Um, and lots of other things out there. So, you know, be resourceful, do your research and you can, you can and should submit a test score. Absolutely. And just to follow up on that Khan Academy free for every student for the SAT, for the ACT, if you're on, if a student is on fee waivers, which is 20% of students get to take the ACT up to four times for free. They also get free prep online through the ACT itself as well. So tons of free resources there. Also just anywhere online, inexpensive prep books, but all students can learn the fundamental grammar, the math, the reading, the data analysis to improve their scores on these exams, get better scores, not only increase their chances of admission, but increase their chances of merit aid, of scholarships, and the knowledge is just helpful in high school and in college and in life. So yes, please go out and study. All students should be doing so. Yeah, man, we didn't even touch on merit aid. That's another a very good point in favor of this. Is um, if you want to get merit aid, you basically like you're most likely going to get it or at all or get more of it if you have strong test scores. Um, yeah, and that could save you thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars in the long run, depending. Correct. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with David Blowbaum from Summit Prep. And you can get a free trial of Achievable's 
ACT course by going to achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.